Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and other cool stuff. Today, we'll talk about why some people call your parents' sister an aunt, and others call her an aunt. And we'll talk about when you should capitalize the names of cocktails. But first, thank you so much to Ethan for leaving a nice review on Apple Podcasts, writing, I like this show, but I don't understand why the tips have to be dirty, which made me laugh. And it's a question I get pretty regularly about the full name of the podcast, Grammar Girl's Quick and Dirty Tips for Better Writing. And actually, the whole podcast network that I founded, Quick and Dirty Tips. And it's been a long time since I've answered that question, so I guess it's time again. Here's the story. When I was growing up, my mom would always use the phrase quick and dirty for something that was just the essentials. For example, she might say, let's do a quick and dirty job on these dishes before we watch TV. And we'd get things loaded in the dishwasher and probably get an especially dirty pan soaking in the sink, but we wouldn't completely finish doing the dishes. So to me, doing the quick and dirty job meant getting the most important parts done and the parts that would set you up for an easier time in the future. I haven't been able to verify this, but I have a feeling it might be a regional saying or at least be more popular in the Pacific Northwest where I grew up. For example, most people I encountered in the early years of the podcast didn't seem familiar with the phrase. But when I was back visiting Seattle many years ago and was walking on the waterfront, I came across a banner for a quick and dirty boat building contest. It looked like people had just a few hours to build a boat out of plywood and then they saw whose boat would float the farthest. Now, when I was starting the Quick and Dirty Tips podcast network way back in 2006, most podcasts were really long, and I wanted a description that let people know that these were short tips that had the most important information, the stuff you really needed, the stuff you'd find most useful and helpful. But people kept telling me they wanted more, so eventually I added segments and let some of them be longer and also started doing occasional interviews. But that's why my network and the podcast both have quick and dirty tips in the name. It's how it all started. And I do hear the phrase more often out in the world now than I did when I started. For example, I hear quick and dirty on the finance channel, CNBC sometimes. And I always wonder if somehow they were influenced either directly or maybe subconsciously by my show or our podcast network. Anyway, thanks again for the nice review, Ethan. Those are always helpful for encouraging other people to give the show a try, and I really appreciate it. Have you ever wondered why some Americans say the word aunt using what's called a flat A sound, 
while others say aunt using a broad A sound. One attempt to answer this question that made the rounds a while back hypothesized that ah brings a more nuanced meaning to the word, namely that aunts are a lot richer than ants. While this certainly might jibe with the sense we get when someone talks about their great-aunt Elizabeth, it doesn't explain why other words like path and dance are also said with the ah vowel by many of those same people. After doing a bit more research instead of relying on internet rumors, it turns out the different pronunciations are actually relics of a vowel change that affected some English dialects, but not others, more than a hundred years ago. To figure out the origin of the great ant-aunt divide, let's travel back to 17th century Britain and see what language authorities had to say about how ant should be pronounced. Well, of course, it's hard to know definitively what people actually said. A number of pronunciation and spelling books written at the time give us a peek into what was at least considered the prevailing norm in prestigious Southern British speech. A number of these books mention the homophony, a fancy way of saying same sound, of the words ant, A-U-N-T, and ant, A-N-T. For instance, the grammarian Christopher Cooper lists them as words that sounded the same, but differed in how they should be spelled in his 1687 book, The English Teacher. This suggests they were likely not pronounced differently at that time by upper-class people in England. But then we have to wonder which vowel was used for both these words, since all Cooper's book tells us is that the two words had the same pronunciation. After all, today in Northern British dialects, the two words are still pronounced the same way, but they're said more like the ah sound compared to the American pronunciation with the a sound. So how can we tell whether the sound in the 1600s was more like the American flat A, as in ant, or the British broad A, as in aunt, when there are no recordings from that time? Although recordings would have been nice, it turns out they aren't necessary because we have something almost as good, language commentators. Linguists have found writings from the 18th century that make mention of some newfangled pronunciations working their way through the London it crowd, and that they were not so favorably viewed. For instance, in his book on proper pronunciation, famed elocutionist, essentially a proper speech coach, John Walker, warns of an inelegant vowel sound making an appearance in certain words, like answer, after, and can't. Want to take a guess which vowel he was referring to? It's actually the ah in the aunt sound. The pronunciation we consider fancy today was looked down on in such words back then. People writing on proper speech at that time appear to suggest that the sound of the a in ant was the established vowel sound in those words while ah in aunt was the shiny new upstart making its way from the mouths of the commoners into the mouths of the upper crust. But then, once it became popular in prominent London social circles, it started to take on all the allure it still carries. Because only certain words like bath, ask, after, and ant started to be pronounced with this new vowel sound around this time, while others like trap, hat, and ant, the insect, kept the original vowel, Linguists refer to this pronunciation change as the trap-bath split. Although the linguistic details of what prompted this split are pretty complex, it's likely that certain consonants caused people to say the vowels differently when those consonants were around, triggering this larger pattern. 
Although this split pronunciation had probably started a bit earlier among the less well-heeled set, by the late 18th century, this trap-bath split had spread to most of London's upper crust. So why does it not seem to have followed the British to America? Well, since many of the early settlers had left for the colonies well before the split really took hold, they brought only the original A pronunciation along for the ride. As a result, the founding dialects in the New World retained only the A vowel sound rather than the new ah sound that became popular across the pond a little later. But how did this somewhat erratic pattern used in 18th century London society still make it eventually to some American shores? Well, pretty much like the rest of what came to the colonies, it arrived by boat. Even though the newfangled ah sound had risen in prominence after many settlers had already left, many of those colonists still looked to London as the model of fashionable speech. Particularly in coastal colonies, early settlers maintained strong cultural ties to the motherland. Some, like the Puritans in Massachusetts and wealthy Southerners in the coastal South, for example, near Charleston, also sent their children back to finish their education. As a result, newer speech forms in London were imported and viewed as fancy-schmancy English. This is why we tend to still see relics of this Southern British pattern in speakers that hail from New England or the South, and why that pronunciation strikes us as somewhat highbrow. While the trap-bath split in its entirety is relatively rare outside of a few pockets in New England today, the aunt pronunciation has persevered more widely as a relic of this pattern, particularly in Southern and African-American communities. It's also not unheard of that other Americans with no history from these ah-pronouncing groups are sometimes known to say aunt. But in those cases, it's likely they just picked it up from having heard other people say it that way, since individual words are easily spread if people find them appealing in some way. And after all, since aunts sound richer and much more high-class than plain old ants, why wouldn't everyone want one? That segment was written by Valerie Fridland, who's a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada in Reno and the author of a forthcoming language book titled, Like Literally Dude, about all the speech habits we love to hate. You can find her at ValerieFridland.com or on Twitter as FridlandValerie. Home isn't just a place. It's a state of mind, like curling up in a comfy chair as you watch the world go by. Which is why at Delta, our people do our best to make you feel at home long before you get there. Delta, keep climbing. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Remember the frustration of trying to memorize vocabulary and grammar rules only to find you couldn't actually use the language in real life? Well, there's a better way to learn. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with millions of users learning 25 different languages, and you can get it on your desktop or as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone immerses you in many ways with its intuitive process. It's really different. 
you pick up the language naturally, first with words, then with phrases, and then with sentences. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for fifty percent off. Is it RosettaStone.com/grammar? That's fifty percent off unlimited access to twenty-five language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your fifty percent off at RosettaStone.com/grammar today. A listener named Dan asked, "Do you capitalize the name of cocktails such as Bloody Mary and Mimosa?" And the question turned out to be more complicated than I initially imagined. Some cocktail names are easy to figure out because they go by the standard capitalization rules. If they don't include something that would be a proper noun, such as a person's name or a city name, you don't capitalize them. So, mimosa, mudslide, and pina colada are all lowercase. I thought drinks that had a person's name, a country name, or a city name would also follow the standard capitalization rules. They're proper nouns, so they'd be capitalized. But that's not the case because these names fall into a special category. They're not literal uses of the proper nouns. For example, most dictionaries and style guides recommend keeping Manhattan lowercase when it's the name of a cocktail, because even though the name is derived from the city named Manhattan, it's no longer associated with the city. They also recommend lowercase for daiquiri, even though the cocktail name comes from a city named Daiquiri in Cuba. But sometimes it's hard to tell whether the drink name is still associated with a person or place. Bloody Mary is sometimes capitalized, for example, because it was the nickname of Queen Mary the First of England. But I didn't know that till I looked it up. It turns out Mary the First ruled during a time of major religious strife, and she had so many Protestants killed that they gave her the nickname Bloody Mary. You could argue that the cocktail name is capitalized because Mary is a name. But that doesn't really hold up because margarita is a Spanish name, and yet when you call a drink a margarita, it's lowercase. Bellini is also sometimes capitalized because the drink invented at Harry's Bar in Venice is probably named after the Venetian painter Giovanni Bellini, but sometimes it isn't capitalized. And White Russian, a drink made with vodka, Kahlua, and cream, is also sometimes capitalized. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, White Russian is the name of a language and a group of people in the region that used to be Russia. However, I still couldn't figure out why White Russian, Bellini, and Bloody Mary are sometimes capitalized, but Daiquiri and Manhattan aren't. It turns out that whether you capitalize the names of foods or drinks that contain proper nouns is a style choice. The Chicago Manual of Style has the clearest rule. It says not to capitalize these terms unless the names literally refer to the city or person. For example, Chicago says not to capitalize Swiss cheese unless you're talking about cheese that comes from Switzerland. Following the Chicago rules, you wouldn't capitalize White Russian, Bellini, Bloody Mary, Irish coffee, or French fries, for that matter. However, Chicago does note that they're in conflict with their own recommended dictionary, Webster's Third. And indeed, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary website recommends capitalizing Bloody Mary, the Irish and Irish coffee, but not capitalizing Manhattan when it's the name of a drink. And that's why I was confused. 
I was looking for the answer in dictionaries, and they make case-by-case recommendations about the capitalization of each food or cocktail name instead of having a blanket rule like Chicago. Also, not all style books have a blanket rule. The AP style book, for example, generally follows Webster's New World Collegiate Dictionary, which, like Webster's Third, also has some names capitalized and other names lowercase. And even Chicago makes one exception, mentioned not in the style book itself, but in the Q&A section. The editors say it's okay to capitalize whimsical cocktail names like Florida Tracksuit, a drink made with orange vodka, raspberry liqueur, and Red Bull. (laughs) They say you can capitalize that so it's not confusing, so people know it's a cocktail name and not just a description of an outfit. So the best advice I can give you when deciding whether to capitalize the names of cocktails or other foods and drinks that seem to include the names of people or places is to pick a style and be consistent. I'm going to follow Chicago style from now on and keep them almost all lowercase because it's the simplest way to do it. This week, I have a familect story from someone who didn't leave a name, and the audio actually wasn't good enough to use, but I liked the story, so I'm going to tell you about it. The word they use is Archie Bunker, based on the character from the old TV show. Their family uses it as a noun to mean the act of offering someone something when you know they're going to refuse. For example, inviting someone to dinner when you know they've already cooked their dinner so they won't actually come. The caller said it became so commonplace that their family would just know that if you wanted the credit for having offered someone something without having to actually fulfill the action, you'd just, quote, make an Archie Bunker, unquote. Grammar Girl is a quick and dirty tips podcast. Thanks to my audio engineer, Nathan Sams, and my editor, Adam Cecil, who wrote and put on a play with his friends in high school, inspired by the life of Hollywood producer Robert Evans, who worked on Rosemary's Baby, Love Story, The Godfather, and Chinatown. Our ad operations specialist is Morgan Christensen, and our digital operations specialist is Holly Hutchings. Our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin, and our intern is Brendan Pika. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. That's all. Thanks for listening. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. At Capella University. You'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.